This is Leo from Hannah, Connecticut, and you are listening to WNHHLP 103.5 FM, streaming at newhavenindependent.org. Welcome to Book Talk, where we talk about books. Today we'll be talking about novel 10,000 Saints, first with the author, Eleanor Henderson, and then with my guests, Dan Purdy and Schiffer Charlin. 10,000 Saints begin shortly before 15-year-old Teddy McNicholas's life ends from a drug overdose. His best friend, Jude, who was doing drugs with Teddy the night he dies, feels responsible. So does his 18-year-old brother, Johnny, who abandoned Teddy a couple of years earlier to go to New York, start up a band, and join the straight-edge scene. And so does Eliza, Jude's father's girlfriend's daughter. Got all that? who gave Teddy cocaine that night, and also that night, became pregnant with his child. The novel follows these three as their lives intersect following Teddy's death and during the nine months leading up to the birth of Teddy's son. Earlier this week, Book Talk host Sid Oppenheimer had the opportunity to speak with author Eleanor Henderson, and we'd like to share that interview with you now. Eleanor Henderson grew up in Florida, attended Middlebury College, and received her MFA from the University of Virginia. 10,000 Saints, her first novel, was named one of the 10 best books of 2011 by the New York Times. She now lives in Ithaca, New York, with her husband and two sons. She teaches writing at Ithaca College and is working on her second novel. Eleanor, thanks so much for joining us on Book Talk on WNHH 103.5 FM. Thank you for having me. So I wanted to start by talking about where this book originated with you, whether it started with a time or a place or a character or a theme. How did it come to you? Yeah, it started with a time and a place. Um, Probably before any characters populated the world, um, the world was pretty clear to me. My husband was involved in the straight edge scene in New York in the late 80s. And he always talked to me about that time and that place in such a way that I was really curious about it. Um, You know, all of his stories were really richly steeped in nostalgia. So I knew at some point that I wanted to write a novel and that I wanted to write a novel about the straight edge scene. Um, And I felt that New York in the late 80s was a a good um, uh, sort of anchor for that world because it seemed to be a kind of heyday. So I knew that I wanted to write a story about straight edge because it seemed like a world that was just full of really rich paradoxes. And I I thought there must be some stories in that world. And um, for those who aren't familiar with the straight edge scene, you know, it's a a huge phenomenon now. But at at that point, you know, it was mostly um, a, a scene, a sort of youth subculture that was driven by teenagers, mostly teenage boys, young people who really were turning the punk scene on its head. So these were teenagers who were really actively involved in hardcore punk for the most part. It was a scene that was really rooted in music. But at the same time, they were rebelling against some traditional aspects of punk, like drugs, sometimes sex, sometimes meat. So that seemed like a really um, weird and interesting world to me. So I knew that I wanted to write about that world, and then the characters in the story um, came later. So there's, there are three, I think, main characters in the story. There's, there's Jude, and there's Johnny, and 
Eliza. But one thing that I was really struck by was that not, not, not one of them really centers the story. At least I didn't feel like any one of them was more central than the other. And I realized in thinking about it that that felt really unusual to me, that in most books I've read, we are really, um, we align ourselves with one character and that character kind of leads us through the story. And mm -hmm. in this book, there wasn't that one character. And I wonder if that was hard to do, if it was hard to write a book where there wasn't one central person with whom you as the writer could align yourself or kind of give to the reader to focus on. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I feel as though the story is Jude's story, you know, as though it is anchored in his point of view, but that's probably because he was the only point of view early on in writing the book. So in the first very long, very messy draft of the book, the whole story was limited to Jude's point of view. So it was told in the third person, but very, very close. And so after witnessing this story and this world through a 16-year-old boy's sort of you know, righteous, juvenile view, uh, as much as I loved him and it, I felt as though I needed to explore other voices. And so at th that point, in starting the second draft, I introduced a number of other voices, including Johnny's and Eliza's. And, you know, I think that the world is more dimensional for that, for sure. And while I still see Jude as a sort of central character, I think he also is the most passive character. Um, we sort of see him, you know, we see the world through his eyes, but um, often he's observing, often he's longing, often he's reflecting. You know, he takes some decisive action in the book, but mostly we're seeing the world through his eyes, especially because he's new to this world. The book starts in Vermont when he is um, sort of grieving this loss at the beginning of the story, and then he moves to New York City. And so as most 16-year-olds going to New York for the first time, um, he's really wide-eyed, right? And he is thrown into the scene that is really intoxicating for him. So he sees the world through this sort of X-ray mega vision, and the other characters are just sort of moving through that world and surviving. So I think they all see the world in slightly different ways and are sort of orient, uh, oriented to the world in slightly different ways. Um, but it didn't feel difficult once I, once I opened up the book to those other voices. It was really freeing because I was able then to reconcile myself and orient myself toward the very complex world um, in multiple ways. And, you know, it's like any world, the straight edge scene um, is really complex. And so rather than just looking at it from Jude's point of view, um, I was able to sort of question it and, and interrogate it from these other points of view too. And that felt right to me. What you were saying about Jude being the most passive member of that group um, reminds me of a quote that I actually pulled out and wrote down um, where you say, Jude saw himself now for what he was, inessential. He was the tissue that bound the essential members together. Teddy, Johnny, Eliza, those who were joined by blood or by sex. Jude was joined to no one by neither. He was beyond rescue. Yeah, I'd forgotten that. I actually um, just visited uh, a college and was asked by um, one of the students in the audience, um, what is your advice for those of us who feel inessential? <laughs> and what did <laughs> you I'd say? Forgotten, <laughs> I'd forgotten about that line. I said, oh, gee whiz. Um, and then I realized, read. Read is the answer. Read books. This is the only way to not feel inessential. Which, of course, um, is not but what, yeah, what I mean, Jude his does. <laughs> 
And yeah, that's not his his uh, his answer. But you know, he finds that answer in music and and another kind of art, and finds his family and community in music. So you know, I think there are all kinds of ways one can do that. But that is the way he becomes um, sort of essential to himself. Um, you know, I think all all characters, all people feel inessential at some point, and he's probably feeling a little bit sorry for himself in that scene. Um, but he is, you know, this character who I think in part um, as a product of being an adopted kid feels that he doesn't really belong anywhere, um, feels that he was sort of adopted into the wrong family. And then when he discovers Straight Edge, you know, he has this sort of instant family that seems to fit him better than um, than his you know, the one that he was born into or adopted into. So, um, you know, I think that as as the character who does feel inessential, does feel sort of untethered to the rest of the characters, he does have a certain um, you know, privilege of insight. Um, and and maybe for that reason, I also feel most closely linked to him because he's, he's the one who's sort of floating in between these other characters and these other worlds. So he's, he is kind of passive and, and kind of watching. Do you feel like there is any one character who you feel like was the hero? Oh, the hero. That's an interesting way to put it. Um, well, you know, I, I think that you, you can be, one can be um, passive and also be heroic. You know, I don't think necessarily that a character has to take um, decisive action in order to um, sort of save the day in the end. I mean, I think he does save himself. I think Jude um, saves himself by making the choices that he that he eventually makes. Um, I think all of the characters take part in that. You know that they support each other, they lift each other up. Johnny and Eliza and Jude, in particular, who are these kids who are you know barely um, in their teens and they have these really grown-up responsibilities. And they're forming a family in a way that, you know, most grown-ups can't even quite, you know, get, get it right, as, you know, as their parents have demonstrated. So I think that they help each other, and in that way, you know, that effort is super heroic. But also they're, you know, they're looking out for themselves. Eliza, in the end, has to make the choice that's best for herself. And Jude supports her in that. And, um... And I think that they then, you know, can then understand the choices that their parents had made a little bit better once they reach that point. So, you know, I don't think that there is a single hero, I guess. You know, I think all the characters are, of course, very flawed, but they also, I think, have really redeeming qualities and make really redeeming choices by the end of the book. I think I asked that in part because, to me, um, it felt like Johnny was trying very hard to be the hero and not in a self-aggrandizing or um, selfish way, but he's trying so hard to do the right thing. And there is this quality in which he is, he is golden, you know, like almost literally, you know, he, yeah. he's always described as like, you know, the golden stubble on his head and his face and, and sort of glistening with sweat and this yeah. kind of golden person. And he is trying so desperately hard to step up and to make up for his failures and to be the hero as he imagines a hero would be. Um, yeah, I think that's right. I think that he does have um, his sights on that kind of, 
even self-aggrandizement, I think, you know, there's a little bit of that um, in a way that Jude doesn't, you know, Jude is just sort of trying to get by and flying under the radar and um, trying to get out of bed in the morning. And Johnny, you know, he has this, um, this sort of adrenaline that fuels him and he has great things in mind, you know, which I think is one of the reasons why he's sort of one of the leaders of this movement and he's sort of the guru figure in the book who, um, feels as though he has something to teach Jude, and he certainly does. You know, I think he has a lot to offer, um, even if some of his ideas are somewhat radical. And you know, in part because he has that those great ambitions in mind, you know, his failure is probably more profound and pronounced than the other characters. Um, and you know, he does, I think, have the idea that he wants to somehow um, save. Uh, save his brother's memory, save the other characters. Um, but I, you know, I, I think that one of the things I wanted to explore in this book was the idea that um, that sometimes that that's impossible, right? Um, the title of the book, Ten Thousand Saints, refers to this um, line from the Book of Jude: "Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all." So. Johnny, I think, is one of these figures in the book who believes it's his authority to execute that judgment. And he also sort of conceives of himself as one of these saints, right, who is this golden boy who only can do right. And the book tries to explore that complicated nature of sainthood, that these boys who conceive of themselves as saints um, can't always deliver. So um, if I think about uh, heroics in light of um, sainthood, I think that that yeah, Johnny probably is the best candidate for that. But it you know it's interesting because in the end, I feel like all the characters in a way choose themselves, um, and mm-hmm. I, but it, it's not a which is not, not a condemnation of them, you know, but a kind of realization that maybe that is what they need to do. You know, there's a there's a I, what I found like a really wonderful moment where they're all in Vermont and. Uh, and Johnny's lover, Rooster, comes to visit and asks Johnny to go back with him to New York, and he says no. And then in the course of just like four sentences, it's like, you know, Rooster goes back, and he's he's working as the delivery guy for his uncle's store, and he's, you know, going around New York, and then he comes home, and Johnny is sitting on his bed folding the laundry, and it's been less than a week. And I just right. thought there was something so perfect about that, the way that was constructed, you know, that just these few simple sentences and his desire to kind of hold out and be the person he wants to be collapses in on itself and he is yeah. there in less than a week. It doesn't leave you know last. Um, and yet there's something, you know, it, to me, Johnny and Rooster are kind of the one true love story um, mm. in the in the book. And there's also a kind of wonderful tender moment where Johnny is making Rooster dinner and he's making yeah. him this, you know, peanut butter and banana sandwich with grape nuts sprinkled on it, which, you know, <laughs> the level of detail there, right? Like, like something so kind of simple and silly, and yet he knows just how to make it for this person, that sort of level of knowledge and trust to sort yeah. of show that. Um, and there, there's not a lot of tenderness between lovers, I would say. I mean, I think there's tenderness between friends, but that kind of yeah. tenderness between lovers is largely absent. Um, and 
Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, they're all they're all pretty young in this book. You know, the 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 ones who get a lot of attention in terms of those romantic feelings. And I think that that's right. And that's sort of one of the book's you know biggest tragedies, right? Is that this relationship is the one that maybe is the most tender, is the most um, profound, and yet it's the one that is is being hidden. Um, and Johnny, I think, is really authentically torn. You know, he wants to be making his lover grape nuts, but he also feels this duty to do right by his brother and feels, you know, a profound guilt. I think that he's driven by guilt as much as anything else, um, that he wasn't able to save his brother. And now he's going to um, devote every ounce of himself to um, raising his brother's child. And... Um, he feels really conflicted, right? Because he wants he wants happiness. He wants to please Rooster. He also wants to be his own authentic self. Um, but you know, this particular moment makes it even harder, I think, for him to recognize his own sexuality because he has this mission. Um, so he has to ultimately make a choice. And in that moment, it's an inevitable one. He's drawn magnetically back to Rooster. Um, which will, you know, inevitably be the choice that he makes and that is made for him. Um, but the other characters have to reconcile with, with that question um, on their own in terms of what choices they make. And um, while I think Eliza ends up making a choice for herself, she's also making the best choice for her child and for her family. And, um, you know, they end up realizing that they can't, they can't bring back the dead, right? Um, and that in that way, the choice feels somewhat inevitable, that the, the mission that they were on was always a somewhat deluded one, even if it, it was a well-meaning one. I think that in some ways helps me understand, um, at the end, to give it some context, um, Teddy's father, from whom, from whom he's been long estranged, who didn't know where he was, his mother took him when he was a baby and left and told him his father was dead. His father comes back into the picture and wants to adopt this child, and they say no, um, and I, I struggled a little with with why they were so opposed to it, but what you say now about, you know, this realization that you can't bring back the dead, that you can't reincarnate Teddy, that it would be wrong to try. Yeah, I, I get that response from some readers who have a hard time understanding why the, these teenagers... Eliza in particular, make the choice not to give the child to its grandparents, essentially, um, who would give probably the child a good home. You know, it's a stable, steady family. Um, his father has never gotten to know his son, so for him it's a chance to, um, you know, to be a father. his own kin. Yeah. yeah, to be a father for the first time. Um, and so, you know, I think there is something really promising and beautiful in that portrait, and um, at the same time, Eliza, the, this mother is carrying this child of a dead boy, is realizing that um, she's being manipulated to some degree, right? These boys um, may love her, they, but they also love Teddy, and they also, um, you know, they're also hoping that she will be this sort of carrier of, of new life, and she begins to resent that, or, or at least um, to be afraid of that responsibility that's involved with that. And I think that she wants the child to go to a family that will love a baby. You know, she doesn't want to burden this child with expectation. 
And, you know, that's something I think that has come out of my own experience of having an adopted brother and sort of understanding what a gift the anonymity of his adoption was. You know, open adoption was not very popular when he was born in 1972. And while I uh, can see all of its rich benefits, um, I think there is something interesting and special about an anonymous adoption where you have a baby to love that you don't know anything about where that baby came from. And also, you know, for the adopted child, like Jude, who knows very little about his parents, um, his, his birth parents, he's able to construct an identity sort of out of whole cloth. And I think that Eliza begins to acknowledge that as a, as a gift to her child, too. And so I think it's selfishly driven to some degree, right? Like she... Um, wants to make a, a grand gesture and she doesn't want to be used herself but she also um, wants to have some control over the situation and so that's the choice that she makes so I, you know I think it's a complicated one I think that um, it may not even have been the right one but for her it was in that moment right and again I'm looking back to my notes because uh, you know, when Jude is talking about his own experience with being adopted and he says you know, it was the not knowing that protected him, the blank page that allowed him to believe she might be anyone or might not exist at all. He could have been raised by wolves. He could be the son of God or a test tube miracle, or for all he knew, he could have fallen to earth with the snow from the sky. And this sense that he's allowed to invent himself because he's not bound by who his parents were or what they impart to him. Um, yeah. And yeah. The, the sense of possibility that, that comes along with that. Right. And, you know, he has plenty to um, live up to or to live down as far as his adopted parents go, right? And he already has that family of origin to complicate his identity as he's forming it. Um, but then he, he's free of that additional layer, um, you know, for better or for worse. Uh, and, you know, there's plenty, plenty of him to sort through as far as Harriet and Les, his, his birth, uh, his adopted parents go. Um, and, and, you know, he's struggling so much with with how to, um, how to be a person, how to be a teenager when he has these parents who are um, you know, a glass blower and a pot seller, you know, not exactly the strongest role models for him in a certain way. And especially after his best friend dies of a drug overdose early in the book, you know, then he um, is left with a lot of questions about how to move on in a way that you know, can, can keep him whole and, and honor Teddy's death. So, you know, then he has even more to wrestle with. In the last book that we did for this show, uh, The Half-Brother by Holly LaCroix, in a lot of ways it's a book about identity, and there are repeated mentions in the book um, about how custom, culture, and conscience uh, really form who we are. And I found myself thinking about that a lot as I was reading this book as well, because I feel like all of the characters feel kind of bound and circumscribed by those three things, by custom, culture, and conscience. And mm -hmm. in some ways, they are trying to escape them, um, to make themselves who they are. And in some ways, mm -hmm. they are kind of looking to them to figure out who they are. Right. I don't know if that resonates with you at all. It does resonate. Yeah, it resonates quite a bit, you know, especially the, um, the part about conscience um, and the sort of moral trajectory um, of the story. 
is maybe um, heavier on these teenagers than they might be on the average teenager, right, who, because they have to um, come to terms with the death of this young person, this tragic overdose, to which both Eliza and, and Jude have really inadvertently but directly contributed. You know, both of them have done drugs with Teddy on the last night of his life, um, Johnny more indirectly, but he feels as though he hasn't been there for his brother. He hasn't provided the influence that he should have been, having left um, the house and, and gone to New York. So they have this um, conscience to deal with um, in a way that is, is really difficult, really challenging. So um, they're constantly fighting with their conscience uh, over the course of the book. And then they have, as far as you know, custom and culture go, you know, all of them have parents who have really dropped the ball when it comes to you know, giving them the tools to um, be able to deal, be able to cope with this. Um, but they do it the best that they can, right? And, and in a strange way, um, Harriet and Les, Jude's parents, end up being kind, a kind of hero, kinds of heroes, I think, um, because, you know, they actually do provide a kind of role model in terms of what not to do. And, um, you know, Les ends up choosing Jude. Um, he didn't choose Jude when he left the family when he was young, but, you know, Jude asked them again and again to help him, to support him, to lie for him, and he chooses these kids, um, even if it's not the most responsible choice, you know, because he wants um, he wants to have a relationship with them. He's driven by his own conscience and his own guilt. I mean, guilt just might be another word for conscience in a certain way, um, because he's left the family. He feels like he owes it to Jude. So, for example, when... Um, when Jude finds out that Eliza's pregnant and then they have to let Les know because she's in danger of losing the baby and he promises not to tell um, Diane, Eliza's mom and his girlfriend, that um, she's pregnant, right? Which is probably not a great uh, choice for the well-being of the family and yet, um, you know, he really wants to uh, to help. So, you know, he's constantly making poor choices, but but too, he's really well-intentioned. I guess I'm just really interested in that dynamic, right? You know, smart people who are really making bad choices, but who are really driven by good intentions. They want to help. They're not all selfishly motivated. Um, they're conflicted in terms of what they want for themselves and what they want for each other. And they're all on this really honorable mission, which is to, um, you know, give this child, this unborn child, the best life they can. But because of conscience, because of culture, um, because of the expectations of, you know, what a, a pregnant teenage girl should do, um, and also, you know, by their own selfish motivation to a certain degree, because they want what's best for them. They want to preserve what's left of their youth. Um, they're very conflicted, to say the least. I wanted to finish by talking about the very end of the book. Um, in the penultimate chapter, uh, it ends with the birth of Teddy and Eliza's son. And there is a really kind of lovely moment when Eliza does not want to see the baby, but Jude goes into the nursery and he holds the baby and he's looking at the baby and he sees nothing of Eliza or Teddy in the baby. And the baby is kind of this blank slate, kind of the way he described himself. He could have fallen, could have fallen from the sky like snow. Um, and there's this sense of infinite possibility of what he can be in the sense of possibility for invent invention of self. And he hands the baby back to the nurse while that moment is sort of still extant. But the book doesn't end there. 
right? It ends with this kind of epilogue um, that is uh, about 20 years later, a little less than 20 years later. And, um, and Jude is grown, and he is uh, with his wife, and they are uh, at this club in New York, and they have there's reference to the baby daughter they have. Um, and, and, there's, and there's some sort of hints that his wife could be Eliza, with whom by the end of the, of the story he is, he is in a romantic relationship with. Um, you know, there's hints of it, uh, but, there's, but she's not named. So I wonder if first you can talk about why you chose not to end with the birth of the baby and why to, to give this kind of epilogue, and second, why to end with that kind of ambiguity. Well, for a long time, the book did end at that moment of the child's birth. And I think that would have been a perfectly appropriate place to end. Um, but at a certain point, I was walking up and down St. Mark's Place in New York City, um, probably late 2000s, um, the aughts. And I realized um, just how much that street and the city had changed since 1988. And as I wrote the book, that became more and more um, of, a, of a thread. And, um, and I, I realized that I wanted to write a book not just about the coming of age of these young people, but also the sort of coming of age of the city. Um, you know, and that city had undergone so many growing pains in itself. You know, I was walking by the Chipotle <laughs> and, um, and the CBGB store that was there for a short time. Um, and I really felt that in order to come full circle, I needed to reach out a little bit further and talk about the ways that that street um, had grown up, uh, but also the way that, um, that that Jude and his friends had. So I wanted readers to know that Jude was okay, mm-hmm, you know, that mm-hmm. he had a family of his own. Um, and I also wanted to show the sort of bittersweetness of kids playing in Tompkins Square Park. I remember my husband walking into Tompkins Square Park many years after um, he had avoided it and saying, I can't believe there are kids playing in Tompkins Square Park. Um, So I wanted to show the bittersweetness of that. And my kids, um, you know, just a few weeks ago were playing in Tompkins Square Park. It's so um, meaningful for me. They actually show up at the uh, end of the movie version of the book actually playing in the park. So that's very special to me um, to show that the shift in the city um, but at the same time, you know, there's a, a lot of loss in that image. Um, you know, there was a lot of pain involved in um, really pushing out a lot of the culture and a lot of the lifestyle of, of, you know, 80s Lower East Side. And I also wanted to, um, you know, I wanted to make that gesture, but without answering too many questions. I wanted the, the ending to feel open rather than closed. So that's why I suggest that, you know, drop a little hints for, for readers that uh, Eliza might be Jude's wife, and I like to think that Eliza is Jude's wife, but I also um, didn't want the epilogue to feel as though it were just about um, answering questions, that it was about um, somehow creating uh, a mood of, of, of moving forward. Well, it's been really great talking with you. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. That was fun. I'm Sid Oppenheimer, and this is Book Talk on WNHH 103.5 FM.
I'd like to take a moment to introduce my guests, Shifra Charlin, who is making a return appearance, and Sam Purdy. Shifra, Sam, thanks so much for joining me today on Book Talk on WNHH 103.5 FM. Thank you, Sid. Thank, thank you, Sam. Thank you. So I wanted to start by talking about straight-edge culture, and I was curious first to know what the two of you knew about it before you started reading this book, because it was completely unfamiliar to me, and I wondered if you brought anything um, anything to the book and, and how that affected your reading experience. Sam, do you want to start? Sure. I remember, um, so high, high school for me was not terribly far away, um, and I remember some some kids who... Uh, were actually friends of mine, but who I didn't, you know, uh, interrogate into their their philosophical ideologies enough to know why they, you know, would sometimes have like X's on their hands, mm-hmm. um, and not just like X's because they'd been at a uh, party, as the book refers to, like you know, was the sort of basis for these X's um, the night before. So actually, there was like there was sort of a straight edge culture that I now looking back saw was probably like overlapping a lot with some of the like hard rock kids. Um, I didn't. I, I knew that it involved um, some form of abstention, right? But I didn't. Um, th- this book helped me kind of appreciate the depth of the the mindset that uh, that that this implies. Pretty interesting. And of course, I had no idea. <laughs> <laughs> so I wondered, in the end, you know, what you guys made of it. There's um, there's a couple of you know moments of, of whether there was anything substantive to straight edge culture or whether it really is just kind of a fad or a front. There's a couple of moments in the book. Um, there's a moment where, you know, Jude is talking uh, or they're talking about Jude and it says Jude's contest of self-restraint went on. He gave up honey. He gave up Coke, mouthwash, processed sugar. He did feel immortal. He felt fabulous, indestructible. So maybe he was addicted to the game itself. What was wrong with that? It was like being addicted to wheatgrass or jogging. And there's, you know, that comparison of like, it, it's, and it's just a game. It's nothing more than a game. Um, I wondered if you felt like the novel endorsed that. And then there's another moment when, um, when Jude finds out about Rooster and Johnny's relationship. They're gay lovers, and, but Johnny is not out. And so for most of the novel, uh, nobody knows about that. Um, and Jude finds out and he confronts Rooster about it. And, uh, and Rooster says, you think a bunch of straight-edged kids are going to care? We're all fags anyway. It's an effing front. Um, and again, I wondered if the novel kind of endorsed that idea that it's just a front or it's just a fad, or is there something more substantive there? You want to take that one? I, I, um, I wrestled with this a little bit as I was reading um, because I think there were so many... Um, there were so many examples of this this challenging. It was a test. It was a sense of how dedicated were you. There was the moment when they were in the two car caravan uh, on the band road trip, and um, Jude spotting the front car with the cigarette hanging out of the front window was such an affront. It was almost like he. It seemed that he felt a personal hurt, and then that was translated towards uh, deep anger. Uh, you know, towards the. Um, towards that entire car for letting that happen. Um, it, it felt like it was the channeling of uh, so much of their just energy around wanting to actually believe in something and be committed to something and be able to sustain some pattern of behavior. Um, I think the book, in some way, 
I, I, reading this, I felt that there was some respect for their endeavor and that it had just gone too far. I saw also, you know, I'd agree there's a way in which they just desire to believe in something. I think it's also a lot about um, the, the need for control in a life that feels really out of control. It reminded me in a lot of ways of uh, anorexia, you know, of this sense that like by abstaining, you have control over something and you can feel this kind of sense of purity because of um, of, of self-denial. And it was that same sense of something having gone a bit too far. Um, and then I also felt like it was both a means of exerting control over your own life, but also a means of protecting themselves from being hurt. Because especially with Johnny, um, you know, there's a, there's a moment where he talks about, you know, uh, he wants to renounce all desires. Um, and, and when you renounce all desires, it brings peace. And I think that he feels that if he has no desire, he cannot be hurt. It's by wanting connection, by wanting love that opens you up to pain. And that's for, in Johnny's life, in so many ways, you know, he has this brother and he loses him and his mother abandons him and his father, whom he thinks he has found, uses him um, and steals his money mm -hmm, and then right. goes yeah. to jail. Um, and, and, you know, and even his sexuality is, you know, is a place of fear for him. I think both because just in general, what it means to be gay in the, you know, mid eighties is uh, where it was not as accepted as it might be today um, is scary. And then also because it's the beginning of this era of AIDS. And so it seems like indulging in his desires is certain death. Um, and so abstaining is a form of self-protection. Yeah. I thought that um, straight edge for Johnny, it was also a form of his own control over the other kids. But I actually thought that for Jude, it saved his life. I mean, he was, you know, just wasting away as a high school student, just getting high and kind of being completely lost in New York and not having any any guidance any anything to hold on to and straight edge sort of rescued him and his overreaction i thought well he's an adolescent um sort of of all the possible ways that he could have gone off the deep end that was not you know it had a that positive side so in that sense um you know probably better than wheatgrass I wondered about his uh, the role of parents or just adults as um, either models or in a way uh, cautionary tales because it felt to me like um, the parents in Vermont were behaving in very similar ways to the adult figure in New York, Les, who it almost felt like the change in perspective for Jude, Jude and, and to complete the analogy, Jude had a relationship with his mother that wasn't, um, it didn't seem necessarily like he was uh, following her behavior, although her, you know, uh, deep connection to drugs <laughs> and involvement with drugs uh, probably enabled him in a certain sense. But Les, being a similar user, became this sort of, I, I feel, a, a disgusting or undesirable uh, figure for for Jude once he was in New York, and I was wondering what 
what sort of caused that shift because it clearly had an impact on him but there, there it wasn't a totally different character from the one who'd been his nearest uh you know so-called supervisor in in Vermont well i think that um i mean i think that it's really teddy's death that is the change um and i think that you know when dude first moves to new york uh he he doesn't feel that kind of repulsion for Les. Um, he likes living with him. And in fact, Les tries to have fewer rules than his mom and doesn't make him go to school and doesn't make him have a curfew. Um, and basically says, I know you're going to smoke and that's fine. But just, you know, don't get arrested because you bring the cops into my house and they're going to see my greenhouse with my pot plants and I don't want to get arrested. Um, and I think for the in the beginning, Jude enjoys that. But ultimately, I mean, you always, you know, it's kind of a cliche, right? Like kids want boundaries, kids want rules that you're doing it for them. But in this book, I think the book really endorses that, that um, dude ultimately is looking for someone to to make his life feel less out of control. And when he encounters Johnny and Johnny gives him this sort of ready-made set of strictures, uh, he, uh, he is drawn to that. And again, it's not immediate, right? Like for a while, knowing Johnny, he sort of is interested, but thinks it's kind of ridiculous. Um, and it's only after he has this experience where he goes to Johnny's uh, concert and he is tripping on shrooms um, and he ultimately puts his hand in a plate of candles and gets burned and has this kind of, you know, uh, epiphany or experience transforms him in that way that he then, you know, goes in the complete opposite direction. But, he, you know, Jude is a very addictive personality. So it's like one or the other. You know, either he's going to be all in as far as the drugs go, or he's all in as far as the renunciation of that goes and everything goes along with that. So there is no middle ground for him. And I think, you know, we see that in that moment in the, where he's driving in the caravan and he sees them smoking a cigarette and it's, it's this, you know, moment of deep transgression. Like there is no, okay, one cigarette, like no big deal. Mm -hmm. um, and same thing with his father. It's like, you know, all or nothing. Well, he doesn't exactly have a model for moderation. In, very true. <laughs> But, you know, what's interesting is that um, I don't, you know, even though in some ways he condemns less, he continues to call upon him. He continues to look to him in a, in a fatherly role. You know, as, as Eleanor Henderson mentioned in our interview, there's that time when Eliza is bleeding and they think she might be losing the baby. And who do they call? They call him. And partly they call him because they think he's not so much of a grown up. And they can trust him to keep their secret and he's not going to tell Eliza's mom. But partly I think he calls him because who do you call no, you're when right. you're 16 and you don't know what to do? You call your dad. And that's kind of heartbreaking is that, you know, in all the ways the parents fail, the kids, they still want them. There's that moment when um, Eliza is talking to Harriet, Jude's mother, mm -hmm. and she yeah. kind of collapses in on her and she says, I want my mom. And it was, I thought that was so... Yeah, it wasn't because her mom was such a great mom, but you do kind of need a mom. And there's another moment where um, Jude goes to talk to Rooster, and he uh, he notices that um, that Rooster uh, has this bandaid on his forehead, and uh, and he says, you know, he felt a small spring of sympathy for him. Did he have no mother to tend to his wounds? And you think, you know, did Jude really have? A mother who tended to his wounds, but he feels that he does because what you've got is what you've got, and you still, you still feel the need. Right, there's a that. presence there. She's there. He lived with her. Right. Yeah. 
Um, but, you know, I wonder what you think of the parents in this book and whether they are all kind of equally <clears throat> culpable and equally bad role models or if there is some differentiation between, between them and if there's more forgiveness or kindness to one than the other. I felt like the... I feel like the book doesn't judge them, and you're not well. The um, the mother of Johnny and Teddy, who abandons them, and just who's a drunk and an exploiter. But I think Harriet and Les, um, Jude's parents, um, I thought it was a pretty sympathetic portrait on a certain level. I mean, Les is okay. He's you know, he, he knows how to leave. Like, you know, uh, Johnny says at a certain moment, um, he would turn any opportunity into an opportunity for leave taking. But still, there are, there are tender moments with him. Um, and there are a lot of tender moments with Harriet, with his mother. I mean, she actually, I think she comes off pretty, pretty well. And the moment when she worries that Jude had fetal alcohol syndrome and there's this sort of, I, I somehow I couldn't find the particular quote, but she says, you know, maybe she can share the guilt with another mother or something. And yes. you just, I mean, I think it's a very sympathetic portrait of her. And then she gets rewarded in the end and gets a nice PI to share her life with. I was happy that she found <laughs> yes, Bob. Me too. You seem me like a too. nice guy. <laughs> me too. Me too. I thought we're supposed to like her. We want her to be rewarded. <laughs> well, the PI brings up the parent we haven't mentioned. We haven't talked about Eliza hardly at all uh, in this conversation. I think she merits a lot of you know discussion and breakdown. But um, her mother uh, is a, I mean, a really interesting figure who is at once like, you know enmeshed in all of these other relationships um having been connected with les but um but at the same time is it, it leads a very you know she lives like in you know she lives uptown she's re, there's a there is a like literal remove that she has from all of this um and i feel like the book actually uses that to make her seem even more like the other in a negative way like like at least they can call less you know at least when they're going to the hospital they'll give Les a call and bring him around. Like they are just completely, uh, the, the kids at least, completely reject uh, Eliza's mother. And I, I think that in some sense, there, there may be a feeling that actually she is in some ways the most parental, right? She's the most like, who want, she is the most controlling. Uh, well, there's a yeah, parental controlling, but <laughs> a little younger. Um, <laughs> but the... Um, so there, there is, there's perhaps a judgment there, but I, I, in terms of effectiveness as a parent, it, she, she doesn't, she doesn't come really close because effectiveness feels like it's about presence and you're, you're, there's, there's some connection, there's some sense of being in touch with your children, and she and Eliza are incredibly distant, except at the end. I mean, except towards the end when Eliza then decides she doesn't want to keep the baby, and then her mother you know, really is there to take care of her. And yes, and you'll go on. And um, I read this book on Kindle. And the fun thing about reading it on Kindle is you get to see popular highlights. So what, what did the people like? 
Okay, I'm going to tell you. Mm -hmm. The most popular highlight was something that Di thinks about being a parent. Oh, I think I know what it's going to be. It's that one, one on earth is a rightful mother. She is with Harriet. She's gone to Harriet looking for her children because they, you know, for both of their children, they've gone off. One on earth is a rightful mother. Were they rightful mothers? In Di's mind, they're... Um, was no such thing. No parent ever acted in her child's best interest. No parent was a hero. A parent wrote her child's story every day. The story was what the parent left behind. Teenage pregnancy had not um, been in Di's script for Eliza. Di had the power to revise this scene. She could cause, she could excuse Eliza from her own bleak future. And then 34 highlighters for the next sentence. Mm -hmm. She didn't want her daughter to be trapped in telling someone else's story before she had a chance to tell her own. Make it 35, because I wrote it down too. (laughs) Because she's the, but that, it's the mother who gets trapped in telling someone else's story. So I thought that was a sort of fairly, you know, pretty poignant that, but meanwhile, it was the one like this. And there were other kind of tough things about parents that get said along the way, which I don't necessarily think that's where um, Henderson ends up in her feeling about these parents, but. I am. Um, for me, uh, Diane was the hardest character to understand. I think we get the least of her and what we get is a little contradictory. Yeah. I mean, in some ways she's like supposed to be your, you know, your upper East side parent. Yeah. She's kind of wealthy and, um, and you know, she has, she has this career. She's been a ballerina um, and she lives in this nice apartment. She has a maid, uh, and she sends Eliza away to school, private school. And um, that didn't really square with her relationship with, to, with Les to me, right. um, which is longstanding. Um, and and we never got enough of her to understand what the connection there was. Um, and so I felt, you know, I, I felt confused by her. It felt like that relationship was almost there to connect them, but uh, didn't didn't wasn't fully realized for me. So I have a harder time yeah. making sense of yeah. her behaviors. Um, but I did, I really did love that moment. Um, you know, uh, because uh, for me, it is a very, you know, forgiving moment for yeah. her. It, it's, you know, it's again, yeah. what, what Eleanor yeah, Henderson yeah. said in the interview about, you know, all these people, including parents who keep making wrong choices, but are motivated by the good intentions that they, you know, they yes. love their children yes. and they want to, um, and, and they want them to be happy and they don't always know how to do that. Uh, and, you know, I mean, there's a moment where Harriet's talking. She says, you know, look at what happened when you tried too hard to dictate your children's choices. They ended up running even farther from you. Um, so they're always struggling with that. You know, how much do we try to hold on to them? I mean, Harriet literally locks Jude in, right? She padlocks his right. window. Um, in the fire escape. Right. Um, and then uh, and then she sends the key to Les in New York, and he Les tells Jude it's because she was afraid she would unlock you and let you out. Because I think it's like, it's that struggle within herself of like, do I lock him down or do I let him go? How, in what way is he most likely to be safe? That was actually, interestingly, also a, a moment when Jude needed protection. Yeah. Right. So I mean, yes. it was almost like yes. Uh, you, you know, when he when the boys who he had, uh, you know, drunkenly and in yes. a high state, like, <laughs> uh, really, uh, dissed physically, like that. You know, he, he was gonna um, 
he, he needed to be locked in, right? Like his, yeah, him because being they, out in the town was dangerous. Because he had stolen all of the half pound or pound of pot. Right, and right, they were going to that's come and yeah, exactly. and exact vengeance. Right. It was the same um, uh the same home in which he'd uh well, the last night of Teddy's life when uh he'd been so violated. Um yeah. by, uh, by, by Tori. Ventura Ventura, yeah. Um you know, that now this was just this ongoing feud, which continued actually later on uh, at the, the Straight Edge show in town. Right. So, Sam, what do you want to talk about regarding Eliza? Well, I think it's, uh, I, I actually was, um, I was looking for even even more of a romance. I thought that this was coming between uh, Eliza and Jude. And, and, and I can't decide whether I like that that didn't happen. In fact, I was even, you know, it's like, oh, wow, there's a sort of postscript of 2006 and there's a marriage. Is that is that Eliza? And and I think it it clearly wasn't. But and part of me was a little. I part of me was disappointed. But I think also it makes for a stronger story. Well, I don't, she, you know, again, Eleanor Henderson. I asked her about that in the end, and she right. says, you know, she deliberately left it vague. But you know, she would kind of like to think that maybe it is. Um, no, but the for, for person me, for me, there's no way. For me, there's no way that it is. And I, I know she said this, but I felt like then 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 she had to write it in a different way because the, there is this sort of. This person feels like a a newbie in in uh, yes. in the park in Tompkins yes, Square Park. Yes. Who are you looking for? You know, there's sort of this curiosity about who might you possibly be looking for. Exactly. When Eliza would have no doubt about that. So I I heard her and I was confused about that because I thought, well, I I was clearly you know sort of went, oh you know when when it was when when that line that line came up. So I don't know. I I that that was one area where I was wondering what if any was the real potentially romantic tie between Jude and Eliza I think he certainly had feelings for her that maybe he just didn't recognize as being romantic that um that that this was someone who he really cared about I think uh, beyond the fact that Teddy had uh, you know that she'd been the last person that Teddy was with I I, w- I wish that there had been some ex- more well, exploration of that. I actually, one thing I think is uh, kind of impressive, something impressive about this novel is how wonderful her depiction of the young men is. You know, Jude, mm. Johnny. I mean, I think Jude is a really amazing character. And, um, but Eliza and Di and even Harriet don't, aren't given or maybe they're just not given as much to do they're really sort of the the console you know they're it's about these boys and it's a beautiful story about the boys and the warmth i mean the warmth of his relationship with teddy i mean they're just beautiful scenes of Mm -hmm. his feelings for him and i don't think you see that tenderness in his i mean there are i mean that's there are moments of tenderness with Eliza, but it's not, you know, it's also really hormonal with Eliza. I mean, he's like really eager. Um, and there's the sense of protection of the yeah. baby that she's holding, yeah. which is yeah. Teddy's. No, I think that's a great point. And I think it, it wasn't, it wasn't, to your point, it wasn't surprising to me when Eleanor said that the book had originally been yeah, all, me too. either in Jude's voice or from yeah. his perspective, because it actually, I, 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 I you disagreed. I, I disagreed with your uh, your take that it wasn't clear. I totally felt like this was Jude's book. Yeah, um, interesting. Which is why, which is partly why I felt like 
I wanted to know a little bit more inside about what he was feeling about Eliza. Um, even if it wasn't, this is my soulmate, but just there's some value in, well, yeah. I think he's a character who doesn't have a lot of self-knowledge, especially at age 16. I mean, what 16-year-old boy has a lot of self-knowledge, but um, he in particular, I think, does not. And so I think that he would be unable to parse out um, whether what he's feeling for Eliza is just lust or whether there's true emotional connection or how much that has to do with Teddy. There is a you know a line at the end of the book talking about um, Johnny and Jude, and it says, they had both wanted to be the one who knew Teddy best. They had both been Teddy for each other, and now the make-believe had come to an end. And I thought, throw Eliza in there too, because it's not just Jude and Johnny. You know, I think they all... They all feel, they are all, I feel like this whole novel is motivated by the tremendous guilt they feel over Teddy's death. They all played a role um, in his death and they all feel responsible for it. And the whole novel is their attempt to atone. And um, and the way they can atone is by sort of saving each other. And in particular, saving this unborn child who will be Teddy reborn. Um, and uh, And so I didn't really feel like there was a relationship between Eliza and Jude that went beyond that. I, I think it would be in this moment in time, and maybe it could get there, but at this moment in time, you know, it's these nine months between Teddy's death and the birth of the child. I think Teddy is so much a piece of all of their relationships that you can't separate it out. I wanted to make sure that before we uh, finished, we got to talk about the ending. Can we do that? Yeah, I mean, let's is, do that. Is that allowed? Is this supposed to be sort of a... No, no, no. We you always should talk... read the book. You know, okay. All right. As I... as I say on every show, I always feel that you can't talk about a book unless you talk about the ending, because often I feel like the ending is the key to understanding the whole book. So, spoiler alert, we're going to talk about the ending now. Yeah, if you, you haven't have to... finished it, go sit down and read it, and then come back and listen to the rest of the show. Go ahead, Sam. Well, so I... I... <clears throat> Um, you know, in the ending, they are about 20 years later in, uh, back in New York, downtown. And I, um, you know, I've, I've been in my cousins, actually, my cousin and my brother actually used to live like a block away from Tompkins Square Park, um, which is actually still a little bit, you know, uh, on the, on the seedy side. Um, but as they describe it in, uh, in their return, it's been, you know, it's been gentrified. Um, it has, uh, the places where they, uh, where the, the homeless and the strung out who Johnny connected with are, they're gone. Uh, the concert hall gone, you know, probably replaced by Chipotle. Um, you know, and for me, this felt like, um, the neighborhood had gone straight edge. Right, like it had gone from the oh, but I, I, I mean, I, I don't want to interrupt Sam, but I, like, I, I, it's the, it's like the opposite of straight edge because it's all. I mean, I've been so I grew up not far from there, and you know, like down Lower East Side, Alphabet City, and when I go back, it's like it's all materialist, like it's all about indulging well, desires. But this is this is why this is why you really missed out when you. What I mean is it, not so much that it had gone straight edge in content, but rather that the the arc of experience from uh you know being high from you know inhaling freon to complete you know abstention like they had it had gone too far the line says uh the the uh jude and his wife not eliza uh are walking around with their young daughter who they're bringing to less and uh and in jude's head it says not a bad thing for your daughter to be able to play in a park 
but Jude's glad Johnny isn't here to see what's happened to the neighborhood. There's something beneficial, in other words, about not having, uh, you know, broken, you know, syringes on the ground and things like this. But maybe it's gone too far. He, as 20 years older in his 30s, sees some value. Oh, I have a daughter. It's nice that we don't have to, you know, be looking all around to make sure that we're not going to be attacked. Um, but maybe this is a little far. And I felt so much like the neighborhood had gone through, sure, in content, it's right, totally materialist and, and, and wouldn't bear any resemblance to straight edge. But it felt to me like there was this sense of, it's a good direction to go in, maybe. But this is too much. Just the way that... You go into straight edge. It's good direction, but you take it too far. Yeah. Still as, as racked with disagreement. Oh, no. well, <laughs> that, that's, I think that's very interesting. Um, we need to get out of the studio, so I think we'll have to end there. Oh, man, I'm sorry. Um, but, but clearly that must just be the right interpretation. Clearly. Right? That's, I, that's I think I you're right. <laughs> you're, you are right. Well, it, can I just... I yes, mean, she, from the very beginning... I mean, she lets us know when we first see Teddy that he's going to die soon. So I think this is a person who this kind of happy-ish ending is, um, I mean, there's a certain, she wants people to move forward and move forward with their lives. And Right, happy but a little bit complicated because maybe it is, maybe there's something lost by... Um, the thing there are things gained, but also something lost. It kind of harkens back to that moment of the demonstration in the park where, um, you know, where the police are trying to kind of clear the park of homeless people. This is back earlier in 1987. And Johnny and his crew are, are, are kind of having a sit in to say, you can't clear us out. Like we belong here. This is our park too. And in the end, the park isn't theirs anymore. And that's what I think he wouldn't want Johnny to see. And there is that sense of there is something lost. Well, Sam and Schiffer, it's been great talking with you. Thank you. Thanks Thank so you. much for joining me. I'm Sid Oppenheimer, and this is Book Talk on WNHH 103.5 FM. We ran out of time this week for our usual recommendation from a friendly New Haven librarian, but Sandra Hernandez Laguna will be back with us on our next show, talking about John Green's Looking for Alaska, so be sure to tune in. Also on our next show, airing December 2nd, we'll be talking about the novel Heft, First with author Liz Moore, then with guests Deborah Cantrell and Brad Ridke. Go get it from the New Haven Free Public Library today and share your thoughts on Facebook or Twitter so we can make them part of the conversation. Have ideas about what we should be reading next or want to be in Book Talk yourself? Email host Sid Oppenheimer at booktalkwnhh at gmail.com. Until then, happy reading. <laughs>